Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. We are very excited today. We're doing something 20th century and something we've not gone anywhere near this on any one of about 800 episodes yet, have we, Chris? No, it's um, it's a name that I'm familiar with, but it's not something that we've, I don't think we've covered before and it's not something that, I don't, I don't think I even did it in school. It probably wasn't classed as history when you were at school, to be fair. <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, maybe it would have been about 10, 15 years after when you started baby school. So, I mean, who's with us? Uh, yeah, today we've got Nick Thomas Simmons, MP, who is the Shadow Secretary of State for International Trade. He is also an acclaimed author of political biographies and has previously released books on both Clement Attlee and Anura Bevin. Uh, he's here to talk to us about his latest, which is based on unprecedented access to cabinet papers. So, Nick, welcome. Um, your new book is entitled Harold Wilson, The Winner. It doesn't feel like a straight up to date, straight update on a biography. It's reshaping a narrative, isn't it? Why did this need doing and what perception do people have of the man that need of this man that needs challenging? Well, it's great to join you on the podcast and I'm very grateful for your interest in Harold. There was, in my view, a narrative in need of reshaping. There were two principal previous biographies of Harold written in the early 1990s by Ben Pimlot and by Philip Ziegler. But both were written without the original cabinet papers. uh, And there's other additional material as well from the Lyndon Johnson Library in Texas that that wasn't released until the late 1990s. I've also had the benefit of Harold's and. hitherto unpublished uh, in in full form autobiography. So a lot of new material. And I've used that to look again at Harold as Prime Minister, because even Ben Pimlott and Philip Ziegler, both excellent books, by the way, but even their uh, praise of Harold is, is, is very qualified. And for me, I saw a prime minister who'd achieved so much, and I'm sure we'll come on to discuss it in terms of 
social change and other things, but also a prime minister that we can now look at in historical perspective. And we've seen other prime ministers deal with similar situations to Harold that have not been as successful. And and a case in point on that is the management of a referendum on our relationship with what was once the EEC and later the EU, where David Cameron in 2016 failed to secure the result he wanted. Harold did secure the result he wanted in 1975. So for me, we have a prime minister whose contribution to history wasn't fully realised, and I wanted to change that. That's brilliant. Um, I have to say, I spend my job at the moment is battling. Philip uh, Seagull is a great historian, but I, I'm battling his biography of uh, Edward VIII at the moment. That's my job is to write a proper book about um, what a scamp he was. So uh, <laughs> definitely see the kind of idea that's behind this book. So let's let's start rehabilitating Harold Wilson then. He was born in the middle of the First World War. So what was his background? So I think if you look at Labour's first three prime ministers, uh, Ramsay MacDonald came from a background of poverty uh, in Scotland. Clem Attlee clearly came from a much more privileged background. He uh, was somebody who went to Haleybury Public School, father was president of the Law Society, came from a very well-off background. Harold Wilson, in my view, comes somewhere in between. He comes from what a later Labour leader, Ed Miliband, called the squeezed middle. And his father was what we probably describe as an industrial chemist. His father, Herbert Wilson, worked in the the dye stuffs industry. He also worked in the munitions industry in World War I. And of course, that's when uh, Harold's second child was born on the 11th of March, 1916, in the Colne Valley, just to the southwest of Huddersfield. And there are, I think, a number of quite important aspects of Harold's uh, background. Uh, Firstly, his father's periodic bouts of unemployment. His father had to move around for work. Uh, They were later to move to the Wirral. His father later moved with, with his mother down to Cornwall. And he always remembered asking his father for money and his father having to apologise that there just wasn't the money to give him. And it left him with this lifelong abhorrence of unemployment as a social evil, which does influence the economic policy he followed as uh, prime minister. But there are other aspects too. There's the congregational aspect, the the fact that he came from that nonconformist Uh, religious background, not just his parents, but also his wife, Mary, was a congregationist as well. So there is that moral purpose in his politics. and It's allied to public service. His parents, uh, Ethel and and Herbert, were very active in the local scouting movement. He was very much a passionate boy scout. So it was this moral purpose, but allied to practical uh, action. Uh, And they are things that I think run throughout his life and his politics. You've also you've titled one of your chapters uh, "Owed It to His Family to Be a Success." Why is that? This that chapter is is talking about Harold and his period at Oxford University, and he was a brilliant student at Oxford. Had 
a final degree with lots of alpha marks, one of the highest, became an Oxford lecturer at the, at the age of 21. He was a stellar academic. And there's often a question about Harold at Oxford in the 1930s, because unlike some of his contemporaries uh, and others at that time, you know, you think of people like, uh, you know, Roy Jenkins, Ted Heath and others that were active in the Oxford Union. Their aim was to be president of the Oxford Union, that debating club that's produced so many cabinet ministers. And the question about Harold is, why wasn't he actively involved in student politics? And that chapter's title is the explanation, in my view, as to why he came from a background where he'd risen by virtue of his own talents and efforts to be a student at Oxford University. And he felt his parents had sacrificed a great deal to get him there. So he owed it to them to be the academic success that he was and to concentrate and focus on his academic work, which is what he did. That's outstanding. I mean, he becomes a member of parliament in the midst of the Second World War. Uh, What's his early record like? Is there any indication of how high he would rise early on? There is is indication because he he has an association with with William Beveridge. William Beveridge uh, comes to Oxford and is recommended Harold as a research assistant He also then, through that connection, essentially, Harold, becomes a wartime civil servant and uh, was an outstanding civil servant because he combined a ferocious memory and attention to detail with an eye for what is practically possible. And that combination made him a civil servant in demand. And he ends up working on things like the, the coal statistics, That brings him into contact with leaders of the coal mining unions in World War II, which makes him, given the historic link between the Labour Party and the mining industry, someone with links to be a Labour MP. And the interesting thing about 1945 is, and this is, I say this with experience of uh, securing a parliamentary seat, it was an unusual election to be a Labour candidate because it wasn't the Labour candidates that were fighting over the seats. It was the seats that were fighting over the Labour candidates. Uh, So there were a lot of opportunities. Labour only had just over 150 MPs. So there weren't that many sitting MPs in addition, uh, sorry, of all the other parliamentary seats held by other parties. But also uh, the last general election had been 10 years ago. So there were people standing there. There were lots of opportunities. Uh, And he was selected for what was then Ormskirk. Uh, Boundary changes later lead him to to the heightened constituency he then represented. But he had that extraordinary knowledge of the Whitehall machine and was then appointed very quickly to become the parliamentary secretary of the Ministry of Works by Clem Attlee. And there's a a lovely story, actually, about how he got appointed because uh, he'd driven after the 1945 election for a meeting of Labour MPs down in London and had given a lift home to far more senior MP George Tomlinson. And it was a nightmare journey. Tomlinson represented a nearby constituency and the car broke down, the brakes failed, which meant that to stop the car, it's difficult to imagine now, Harold had to drive it into the pavement to be able to stop it. 
And when Clem Attlee uh, eventually spoke to Harold to appoint him to his first ministerial job, Clem Attlee always spoke in this very laconic, clipped way, spoke to Harold on the telephone and said uh, that he wanted to make him Parliamentary Secretary of the Ministry of Works. He said, you've got to report to your minister, who is George Tomlinson. He said you tried to kill him, but he doesn't hold it against you. <laughs> so he, 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 then, he then becomes uh, junior minister to George Tomlinson before moving on to be Secretary of Overseas uh, Trade and then becomes remarkably president of the Board uh, of Trade, uh, which is a remarkable uh, achievement that I know we'll come on to, to discuss in a moment, but he was certainly somebody who was a, who was a high flyer. He sounds like he's got a lot of potential at, uh, at an early stage, despite trying to kill his, his minister. <laughs> so, uh, if you could talk us through his uh, path to leadership, he's the youngest cabinet member in, of the 20th century, is that right? Yeah, so, so he becomes the uh, cabinet minister at the age of 31. And it's, it's, he's younger than even Winston Churchill was when he became president of the Board of Trade in that new liberal government before uh, World War One. It's a remarkable achievement in itself. And he was, he loved being president of the Board of Trade. I interviewed later Prime Minister Theresa May in the book. And Theresa May was actually a staffer on the commission that Harold chaired after being prime minister, looking into the functioning of financial institutions. And this is the late 1970s after he stepped down as prime minister. And Theresa May said that even then he was quoting trade statistics, quoting things about the trade cycle. He loved trade, loved the whole idea of the balance of payments, you know, looking at uh, exports and imports. It fascinated him. And as president of the Board of Trade, he... Uh, supported the British film industry. That was another huge passion of his. And also was responsible for the bonfire, as it was put, of the wartime controls. And by that, I don't mean just the loosening of rationing. We forget, I think, that the wartime controls extended right down into all types of industry, controls on raw materials that you could use in particular manufacturing processes, and he loosened all that. So he was very successful president of the Board of Trade. And then the, the, the British Pathé footage is still available of him giving broadcasts, talking about the loosening of the restrictions. But he made his real political impact within the party in 1951 with his resignation from the Attlee government. I think Herbert Morrison said that it was the first time he'd really surprised us. And that, that dispute is a very significant dispute in post-war Labour history. It isn't just because Anaya and Bevan and Hugh Gateskill were the, the leaders of the next generation on the right of the Labour Party and the left of the Labour Party, respectively. It was also a deep argument about a turn to militarism and confrontationalism, as Bevan saw it, in American foreign policy, the Marshall Plan, the assistance for Western Europe, was something that Bevan and the Attlee cabinet supported. But Attlee had crossed the Atlantic in 1950 after the outbreak of the Korean War and secured a promise that the American president, Harry S. Truman, wouldn't use a nuclear weapon without consulting the UK. But it was at a price of huge 
increase in military spending. And the cost of that, as Hugh Gateskill saw it, as the Chancellor in 1950-51, the introduction of charging for teeth and spectacles in the NHS. So you've got this mixture of personal rivalry between Bevan and Gateskill, the huge uh, dispute over the increased dis- defence spending, and indeed the principle of NHS charging and personal rivalry, all in this huge dispute. And there's a choice for Harold Wilson, and Harold Wilson resigns with an Iron Bevan. John Freeman, the Minister of Supply, resigns as well. Harold uh, was, I would suggest, far closer personally to an Iron Bevan. Uh, he was also far closer in economic outlook. They both believed in economic planning. But it was also a politically astute thing to do because it meant that Harold Wilson was seen as coming from the left, the pragmatic left of the party. And whilst that link to the left frayed at different times over the next few decades, it was never fully severed. And then what happens in the 1950s, the first part of the 1950s, he's in that Bevanite group on the back benches in pitch battle with Hugh Gateskill and others. But he replaces an Iron Bevan in the shadow cabinet, very difficult thing to do in 1954, and eventually backs Hugh Gateskill for the leadership and becomes first shadow chancellor, then shadow foreign secretary, and becomes a quite outstanding House of Commons debater with wit, repartee, command of detail, control of the House of Commons chamber, that mean that uh, he, in the 1950s, really does become Labour's coming man. So tell us how he gets the leadership from Gateskill then. So the first of all, you get this very sudden death of Hugh Gateskill in the very early part of 1963. Now, that, that does have a huge effect, and it, it's happened not the only time it happens happens with John Smith later as well in 1994. We, Labour has lost it, its leader in that way. And at, the t- at that time, the, the way the parliamentary party was, and remember it was only the Labour parliamentary party that voted on the leader then. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. It usually would be the case that the leader would come from the right of the parliamentary party. That's what had happened with Hugh Gateskill in 1955. However, a number of factors favoured Harold. Firstly, the death of Aniron Bevan in 1960 meant that for the left of the party, there was only one realistic candidate, that was Harold Wilson. So he, he starts with all the left of the parliamentary party will support him. He's also someone, as I've said, who, although he, he came from the pragmatic left, had also served in the shadow cabinet and senior positions and done well. So he's likely to get votes from the centre of the parliamentary party as well. In addition to that, there were firstly two candidates from the right of the party, James Callaghan and George Brown. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Which means that on the first round, having two opponents from that part of the party is helpful because you can build a substantial lead. But secondly, George Brown, who was the deputy lead, although... George Brown is quite underrated, I think, very good orator and had real good command of government departments, but also was a bit too fond of alcohol and was seen as something of a really unstable presence. So uh, it was always going to be the case that unlike Hugh Gateskill in 1955, who could mop up all the votes on the right of the party, the right of the party in 1963 didn't quite trust George Brown with the leadership. And all that combines to mean that Harold Wilson is the winner of that leadership contest and uh, becomes leader at a point at which a substantial amount of the 1959 parliament has already gone. So he's into immediately the home straight for the general election. Every, every politician has got, like, has got the speech that they're remembered for. Uh, the one that sort of really defines them. And in your book, you mentioned one in 1963 that defines the, the political area, political era, sorry. Uh, can you uh, tell us about it? Yes, and this speech, in my view, uh, really does capture the zeitgeist. This, this is a speech that defines the political times. And Harold Wilson symbolised modernity and he symbolised it partly because of the Conservatives. The Conservatives had switched leader in late 1963 from Harold Macmillan to Alec Douglas Hume and it was done on the basis of Hume, uh, sorry, of Macmillan in a hospital bed, essentially advising Her Late Majesty the Queen. Uh, Hume is selected as the successor but was a hereditary peer so he has a period where he has to disclaim the peerage and find a parliamentary seat, which he does at Perth and Kinross and wins a by-election in November 1963. But there was a short period where the prime minister, not elected by MPs, just on soundings, was not a member of either the House of Commons or the House of Lords. And and, and Harold Wilson said with some justification, an aristocratic cabal, has chosen our prime minister. So you have this very formal, hidebound society of the 1950s that's, in a sense, exemplified by the way the Conservatives have chosen their leader. Then you have Harold Wilson, grammar school boy, who's got to where he's got on his own efforts. Very informal, very modern, young, dynamic. And that then is, is the backdrop to the speech that he makes in Scarborough, where he talks 
talks about the white heat of the technological revolution, symbolizing, he symbolized that modernity. And what he also did in that speech, where he talks about restrictive practices on either side of industry, not holding Britain back, capturing the center ground of politics, if you like, but also setting out that there will need to be that modernization around technology. The speech talks about how car manufacturing processes are going to change, how technology is going to be be a factor in all the different factories and workplaces in the UK. And it really did come to symbolise what he wanted to do in terms of modernisation in the 1960s. I think we really need to talk about, we will now talk about his periods as Prime Minister, but before we do, this this timescale, sort of mid-60s to mid-70s, is a really crucial period in Britain's history in terms of governance and lawmaking. Like off the top of my head, um, decriminalising homosexuality is, is in this era, isn't it? As is, I think it's when we finally do away with the death penalty. Um, can you explain just what this period means in terms of Britain's development? This, this is such a significant period in terms of the society that, that we have today and things that we come to take for granted that actually were very difficult at the time. And it's a quite remarkable list of achievements. You get the first two race relations acts, the first time that on our statute book we outlawed uh, discrimination. And that comes from Harold's period, two acts in that first government. There's another one in a later government as well. But the, ab- but the huge social changes, so the abolition of capital punishment in 1965, abolition of corporal punishment, by the way, a couple of years later, because there was still birching in, in British prisons that, that, that was happening at that time that was abolished. You then get, you've mentioned, uh, Alex, the, so the Sexual Offences Act that decriminalised homosexuality. And that is a huge change because people could from then on love who they wanted to without fear of a police knock at the door, or as happened so much in that era, uh, blackmail, where people, uh, other people who knew about someone's sexuality would be uh, blackmailing them, extorting money from them. Uh, The Abortion Act, which took away the spectre of backstreet abortions that were happening uh, prior to then, and that's before we get to things like the abolition of theatre censorship, the Divorce law reform of 1969, which meant people were no longer stuck in loveless marriages. The 1970 Equal Pay Act, which is a groundbreaking act from Barbara Castle, which really did produce equality between men and women in the workplace. And in education, the open university, the idea of second chances in life, the idea of lifelong learning also is something that has stayed with us since. So it astonished me that you had this this period of rapid social change, and yet the government at the time seems to get a little credit for it. So let's talk about his first period in office as prime minister. What does he inherit in terms of issues, and what is your verdict on his leadership? Well, there, there was the economic inheritance was a very difficult one, and that economic inheritance is is what came to dominate a lot of the perception of him, where he was left year after year with the currency, uh, the issue with the currency and the pound that he inherited. And in those days, 
the balance of payments was seen as whether the, the, the ultimate thing is whether a government's doing well or badly. These days, we talk about the inflation rate, don't we? We talk about the interest rate. We talk about GDP. We talk about growth, economic growth, uh, very much <clears throat> a, a uh, debate of the modern day. But it was the balance of payments. It was the fact that the government had to be, on our country rather, had to be exporting more than we were importing. And throughout his period in office, with the attacks on on the pound within the particular currency structure, as it was called, the Bretton Woods system that existed, the pound was constantly coming under pressure. And he was left with this choice between deflating the economy or devaluing the currency. And for as long as he could, he avoided devaluation until it happened in 1967. And the broadcast that he made is what was hung around his neck for many years afterwards, where he said that the pound in your pocket, your purse or your bank has not been devalued. And people saw it as uh, misleading. Of course, in a technical sense, it was correct in that if you had £100 in your post office savings account at the start of the week, you still had £100 in it at the end of the week. However, its purchasing power was significantly diminished. So the pound in your pocket broadcast was hung around his neck for many years afterwards. However, my my view is that if you look at that government, we've already mentioned it, it's remarkable social reforms. But also if you look at his record in terms of helping the very poorest in society, if you look at the way the benefit system uh, operated, uh, if you look at the the healthcare of the time. We've already discussed uh, education, and of course, there were huge education reforms uh, in terms of moving from grammars to comprehensives. But against that difficult economic backdrop, Harold still achieved a great deal, and he achieved a great deal that endures to the modern day. So, why is he out of office come 1970, and how is he? How does he react? He re- reacted uh, in in a very shocked way, actually, and. The, he was widely expected to win in 1970. The opinion polls all pointed uh, towards it. And there are lots of theories as to the final week of the campaign. There's a, on, on the Monday for the election, uh, uh, some bad balance of trade figures that uh, were said to have had an impact. There's even, as much, there's even a debate as to whether uh, England being knocked out of the Football World Cup had an impact too. But Edward Heath wins a surprise but but small victory in 1970. And going into opposition was a real shock because being leader of the opposition in 1970 was very different from being leader of the opposition in the early 1960s, particularly in terms of the media and the huge expectations. And the thing Harold found difficult was to go from being prime minister with all the civil service at your disposal, the cars, everything government ministers had, to suddenly having no way to fund his office. And interestingly, the shock of going into opposition and realising how difficult it was without money and having to raise money is one of the reasons we've ended up with what we call short money today. And short money was introduced by Ted Short in the mid-1970s to give public money to the opposition in Parliament to carry out its public function of scrutiny. And the reason we have that is the shock that Harold felt in the early 1970s of how to be in opposition without any access to public money. 
premiership of Ted Heath and the Conservatives is pretty short. He's back in 1974. How does this come about? So Harold is the only party leader who's done this in the post-war era, who's uh, gone out of office, then won again within one term and come back. And it's a remarkable political achievement. Clearly, the Heath government runs into heavy economic weather, uh, particularly after OPEC quadrupled the price of a barrel of oil overnight in 1973. You had the raging inflation, industrial strife. But also, it's Harold's handling of the issue of our membership of the then EEC. And I think this is actually a triumph of strategy because in the first EEC application in the early 1960s under Macmillan, Harold has a sceptical, gives a sceptical speech in the Commons, but he does recognise in that speech that there could be a practical case for joining. He tried to join himself in the late 1960s, but on both occasions, Britain's membership is vetoed by the French president, Charles de Gaulle. By the early 70s, de Gaulle has gone and Heath manages to successfully apply and join. Harold's problem by 1970, though, was that there was a substantial part of the Parliamentary Labour Party. 69 Labour MPs broke the whip to vote in favour of joining, led principally by Roy Jenkins. On the left, principally led by Michael Foote, were those who didn't want to join as a matter of principle. And the very messy compromise he comes to is that Labour will oppose Heath's joining, but on the terms Heath has negotiated, not on principle. And he does so much work behind the scenes to make sure that Labour doesn't become opposed in principle. His press secretary, Joe Haynes, tells great stories of being sent off to Labour's National Executive Committee to you know, twist arms, persuade people not to vote for that to be the party policy. And then he adopts the position of a, a referendum, which not only gets him through the two 1974 elections, he then successfully secures the UK's place in the EEC in that referendum in 1975. I think we've reached the the crux of the book, haven't we? Which is, first and foremost, I think it's fair to say that Wilson is remembered for political chicanery, um, how he played the game, as opposed to what he did while he was playing it. Is this fair? I, I don't think it is entirely fair. And Harold, there's no doubt at all, Harold was a fine political tactician. No doubt about that. And had a, an instinctive feel for the Labour Party, Labour voters, and indeed swing voters across the country. And he was a short term, a good politician. But just because you are good in the short term doesn't mean you can't have strategic objectives and achieve them as well. And there's a lovely scene which is described in the book the day after the 1975 uh, referendum, which which I got from I was talking to Robert Armstrong, who the late Robert Armstrong and Robin Butler, his civil servants at the time, and sat there the morning after the referendum having secured our place in Europe, he said, there you go. And people say I've got no sense of strategy. But of course, he did have a sense of strategy. And if you look at that that second government of 74 to 76, when it's a government that's existing from hand to mouth, it had either a tiny majority or no majority. And yet, 
for all this short-termism surviving week to week, that government achieved the, the Health and Safety at Work Act, which it's not an under, understatement to say that that act has saved lives in the workplace in the decades since. It's the foundation of modern-day health and safety law. Another Race Relations Act, as I've said, that came onto the statute book just after he'd left, but was the achievement of his government. Also, <clears throat> the Employment Protection Act, things like maternity, statutory maternity leave for the first time, ACAS, which is still the conciliation body in industrial relations, founded by that government. So again, what you see is huge constructive achievement that changed people's lives, but in my view, unfairly pushed out of view by these allegations of, of Harold being the, having this political chicanery. So what should, what should his legacy be and how should we remember Harold Wilson? I think he has a legacy to the Labour Party and a legacy to the country. And his legacy to the Labour Party is about winning. That's why the book is subtitled The Winner, because he won four times. And no Labour leader has won as many general elections. And he shows us that being, uh, being relevant facing the public, speaking to the public's priorities as to how Labour can make a difference uh, is, is how you win. And his legacy to the country is a remarkable one, in my view, of constructive achievement. The huge, the, the social changes, the changes in education, the changes in workplaces in the mid-1970s that really have made the workplace a safer place. Harold Wilson's Britain was a Britain of tolerance, a Britain of respect, and a Britain of second chances. His is a legacy that we really have now, in my view, got to acknowledge and recognise is shaping still our society today. Wow. Um, well, thank you very much, Nick. That's That, that was great. Um, could you remind everyone, our listeners, uh, what the title of your book is and where they can uh, where they can get it from? It is available, as they say, from all good bookshops and uh, online. It was published on the 1st of September by Weidenfeld and Nicholson, and it's called Harold Wilson, The Winner. Again, thank you very much for, for coming on and, and speaking to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.